Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 90 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. Happy Easter to those celebrating. Happy Passover to those celebrating. Today we will cover three cases. The first case is an Illinois Appellate Court 3rd District case. Krishnamuthi versus Chen. An interesting case involving college and professors. And interesting things about assignments. The second case is from the Illinois Appellate Court 1st District. Nationwide Property and Casualty Company versus State Farm Fire and Casualty Company. And the third case today is Newkirk versus Leslie, a third district case involving trees and damage and the winds, and we'll get into that, a, a common issue. Turning to our first case today, does the assignment by a department chair of an elderly faculty member to teach a graduate class in a field in which he has no experience constitute the intentional infliction of emotional distress and the tortious, tortious interference with prospective economic advantage? That is the question to be addressed when the Illinois Appellate Court, 3rd District, decides Krishnamuthi versus Chen that was argued this week, past week. Dr. Krishnamuthi, a 79-year-old professor in the engineering department at Bradley University who suffers from a variety of health conditions and is an expert in engineering statistics, which he taught his entire career, was assigned by Dr. Chen, the department chair, to teach a class in facility management, a field in which he has no experience. The assignment occurred after Dr. Krishnamuthi opposed Dr. Chen's reappointment as chair and reported him for alleged misconduct. The class assignment was approved by the dean despite alleged violation of the faculty handbook and the procedures for making the assignment and the decision of a faculty committee recommending against the assignment. The trial court dismissed the case, finding that the plaintiff had not pled sufficient allegations of the emotional distress claim, and that the decision of Dr. Krishnamuthi to work part-time to avoid the assignment did not constitute tortious interference with economic advantage. The oral argument of plaintiff focused on the imbalance of power between Drs. Chen and Krishnamuthi, while the defendant focused on the policy implications of allowing a dispute of this kind to be covered by tort law, where there were no allegations or threats of sexual misconduct. Pat, tell us about the oral argument in this interesting case. Thanks, Dan. And uh, it, lest we uh, ignore it, also, I believe we're in the middle of Ramadan. So we are. Uh, yep. So, so all three was... uh, Western religions are celebrating uh, big holidays uh, simultaneously. And we um, don't know, I don't know how often that occurs, but. With the lunar calendar, who knows? Right. <laughs> So this is a case with another attempt to expand the definition of, inflic of, in of uh, infliction of emotional distress claims, whether it be a negligent infliction or an intentional infliction, as it is here. Uh, and we talked about this on episode 42 of the show when we discussed Ger German versus Woolsey. And that's the case where the guy downstate is uh, uh, pumping fuel in, or not fuel, strike that, pumping uh, fluid in to a, uh, to a fracking site 
they jacked up the pressure too much and the place comes blows up and we had that very colorful description from council as the world was ending as he's running away and this this uh, blowout is occurring uh, and because there was no physical injury the court held that there wasn't and nor did he witness anybody being injured there was no negligent infliction of emotional distress in that circumstance so we bring ourselves to this circumstance which is a fight fight amongst academics and my mother was an academic she was a dean a, a associate dean at a school and talk about i mean there's some petty stuff that goes on between people uh academics you know um i, I think the expression is uh you know give someone a little little power you know when there's little to fight over there they fight a lot when there's just this little thing they they want to hold on to that little thing that they've got and apparently this dr chen or at least i should say alleged not apparently allegedly dr chen was displeased with dr krishnamuthi opposing his reappointment and these people had apparently a long-standing disagreement with each other so i'll show you here teach this graduate level class and something you know nothing about enjoy dr krishnamuthi uh and you know I, he presumably dr chen knew or at least may have suspected, given his age and whatnot, that Krishnamurti was susceptible to this uh, and claimed distress. So there's two aspects upon which the defendants attacked. The first was what Chen did wasn't outrageous. It was something within his purview, and the dean agreed that he could do it, even if he may not have thought it was the best decision. He's he, The dean deferred to the uh, department chair to run his department the way he wants to, because if you imagine... The dean getting involved every time you know one of the department chairs and one of the professors gets in a beef over somebody being assigned a class he doesn't want to teach notwithstanding the example given by uh, counsel for the plaintiff appellant here he likened it to a, a, a law professor who has a long-standing practice in teaching civil procedure and all of a sudden he gets to gets to teach an, an advanced tax class it's like what's he know from tax uh, it's the same kind of a thing. I don't know what engineering statistics is. I'm not sure what facilities management is. Both of those things are well outside my field. Uh, and apparently at least one of them was outside of Dr. Krishnamurthy's field. Um, and so he, you know, the argument was it would be a disservice both to the students as well as to Dr. Krishnamurthy, who wasn't in a position at 79 to learn this field and to do justice for these graduate students. Um, who presumably are in this field. That's why they're taking this class. Uh, so then you had the other part of it was, did Dr. Krishnamurthy plead sufficient allegations of emotional distress? Um, and apparently he didn't plead anything, you know, something sufficient to plead, you know, how distressed he was. If you remember back the Woolsey case, there was a diagnosis of PTSD. So there really wasn't a question that he had pled the severity of the emotional distress. The question is whether he had pled a physical injury to go with the emotional distress that would that could underlie the claim. So it's a slightly it's a different problem with the theory. We'll see what happens here. I, I have my doubts uh, that this is going to work. The other claim is this uh, perspective in economic advantage. You know, did uh, Dr. Krishnamurthy uh, saw you know was this a target on his on his ability to continue to work. And the point was made, well, he chose to go part-time in order to avoid the assignment. Um, you know, could Dr. Chen have expected that to happen or was it, does it operate as a, essentially a constructive uh, firing? 
Um, I, I'm not sure that it does, um, but it it's certainly it, it, it's hard to understand how that um, that could be. You know, giving someone an assignment, it, it didn't take away his job. He gave him a job. He gave him a task he didn't want. Uh, and so the the this is an at will employment. He's a tenured faculty member, presumably he'd been at the school for you know several decades, uh, thirty some years uh, teaching in the uh, in the engineering department. I mean, he can choose not to teach the class, which is apparently what he did, um, and went on part time status. Which at seventy nine says like, dude, you you you've done your time. Uh, go go enjoy life. Uh, but that obviously isn't what Dr. Krishnamurthy wanted to do. But does that qualify as prospective economic advantage? And does this kind of a dispute really belong in the courts? And is the tort is tort law really the place to deal with this? It, I have to think that if there was a contract claim that Dr. Krishnamurthy could have brought, he would have brought it. If there was an employment discrimination claim, if he was discriminated against based upon his age or his, his, his race or, or something along those lines, we would have seen that, but we didn't. What we see is a tort claim. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a claim against the university, um, you know, of, of any kind, uh, whether in contract or tort or you know some sort of statutory claim for discrimination. This is purely two professors that really, really don't like each other. Uh, so, does that kind of dispute really belong in the Circuit Court of Peoria County? I'm not sure it does, and the trial court at least agreed. We'll see what the appellate court has to say, Dan. Thoughts on this matter? I agree with you, Pat. I, I was uh, thinking as, as I listened to this oral argument about the McMurray case and the uh, closure and the the uh, the handbook, you know, and the kind of mm. guidance. I remember about the whether they they were entitled to uh, money for the, the timing of the the notice, and and like you said, this when the when the university closed. shut down and whether it right. was a yeah that that, that well, I'll be look up and see while you're talking. I'm going to look up and see what episode that was on. Go ahead. And, and ju just the issue of you would think that there's some faculty handbook that would have these types of issues, you know, where there's inner intra department disputes or something. But like you said, if if he had something there, he would have probably raised it. So again, as you said, the dean approved this. You know, the faculty committee recommended against it. Like you said, the biggest disservice here would seem to be to the students that are are taking a master's level course and facility management or whatever whatever that's part of and uh, if he had taught it you know it seems like a disservice like you said to be like a, a law professor teaching a course to us that you know had no idea about you know not, not very good for the students but I don't know that that's a court a tort type of uh, it rises to a tort so I think yeah. uh, I have my doubts about this case I, 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 I do too I, I think it's creative and I think parties are continuing to be creative uh, I posted this week on the decision in McKenzie versus Community, which was another along these lines of cases in Indiana about we've thought that we've talked about about thieving of HIPAA of, of protected health information and records of that kind. That seems to be a theme over there in Indiana, where people like to thieve medical records and and then bring a action, and they finally have recognized the Illinois or strike that the Indiana Appellate Court strike that the Indiana Supreme Court has recognized the tort of public, public disclosure of private facts, though it didn't find it occurred in that case because there wasn't publication, but they've at least acknowledged the existence of the tort. Um, the, in Illinois, we see this, the, all these fights over 
uh, emotional distress claims. Kind of interesting the way we see how the law is developing in particular areas. You know, we have a, a cluster of cases on a particular topic. Um, that is how the law develops. It develops in fits and starts in particular areas. It's not exactly clear why it happens. Uh, you know, the exception to that being the COVID-19 stuff. We know more about physical, uh, direct physical loss or damage to property than anyone could possibly ever think we're going to know. Uh, and we know exactly why we know. It. Right. <laughs> but very rarely does it come up in that kind of a way, a whole cluster of cases on something you know, so broad, so national. Um, and that's why we've covered that issue so, uh, the way we have, because it's such a big deal. So, uh, unless, Dan, you have anything else, we'll take our first break and nope. come back with uh, Nationwide versus State Farm. We're back for segment two of episode 90 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and we're discussing Nationwide versus State Farm. Nothing better than when two insurance companies are duking it out. Um, <laughs> Does the, does the inclusion of an allegation in the underlying complaint that the defendant insured should have engaged a flagger at an intersection where construction was being conducted trigger the automobile exclusion of a CGL policy? Now, that's a mouthful, but we'll, get, we'll explain. Does it matter whether the allegations of breach in the underlying complaint are pled in the conjunctive or the disjunctive where two other allegations of breach plainly trigger application of the automobile exclusion? Or does the manner in which the jury instructions will be written, always in the disjunctive, as, assert, as asserted by Justice Lavin, control? Is an insurer stopped from asserting its policy defenses on a CGL policy it issued where the insurer defended and indemnified the insured under an automobile and an umbrella policy it also issued but declined to provide coverage under the CGL policy issued to that same insurer. Those are the questions the Illinois Appellate Court First District will consider when it decides Nationwide Property and Casualty Company versus State Farm Fire and Casualty Company that was argued this past week. Justices Fitzgerald, Smith, and Lavin broke sharply during the argument in a way that we don't see very often, justices no. uh, speaking this way, over the issue of the pleading and what was sufficient to trigger coverage and the parties split over the application of the estoppel doctrine. I'm going to play a portion of this argument here um, so you can get a flavor and then give a, a little bit more and then kick it to Dan. So bear with you just a second while I cue this up. analysis shows that when the risk presented only presents itself through the use of the motor vehicle, then the motor vehicle exclusion applies. And that we have that here. We have the, the allegations of negligence. The risk only exists or manifests when you have the dump truck in the intersection. That's the only way that, that this accident happens. That's the only way the complaint is pled. And it would be significant if the complaint was pled differently if there was a standalone count, like in March, but there isn't a standalone count under the road construction exclusion, like there was in March. And that is the distinguishing factor. The problem I have with your argument there is that in every single negligence case that is ever submitted to any jury in Illinois, if there are 
if there is more than one allegation of negligence, they only have to prove one. So it's one, the specific language from the IPI is the defendant was negligent in one or more of the following respects. I don't care what the complaint says. The only way liability attaches in a multiple allegation is if one or more. Some cases you can, I would tend to argue that I proved all three, but I only have to prove one. And that's the way every single negligence case gets presented to every jury. Catherine, you may proceed. She's muted. Can I respond to that question? No. You've answered it three times. Now move on. Thank you, Justice Smith, and I apologize about that. So the justice with the question is Justice Terry Lavin, who is a longtime and very successful plaintiff's lawyer before being elected to the appellate court. And Justice Fitzgerald Smith was the justice that came in, cut off the one advocate and kicked it to counsel for the appellant. He was sitting, as he often does in that panel, as the chair of the panel. So he has the right to do it. You just don't hear them do it that way very often. So some facts. The underlying plaintiff, a minor, was injured by a dump truck while riding his bike in a residential neighborhood where road construction was being done. State Farm paid the $3 million under its automobile and umbrella policies, but declined to defend or indemnify an additional insured under the CGL policy, asserting that the automobile exclusion applied as it contended and the trial court agreed. Dan, tell us more about this case. Sure. And the third panelist in this case is often the case of the panel was Justice Cobbs. Otherwise known as the deciding vote. That's right. I think that's where she's going to be in this case. Well, that's important because at the end, you didn't play to the very end, Pat, but Justice Fitzgerald Smith said, we'll get back to you as soon as we find a way to agree. And so very clear. Which is different than he normally ends the arguments. Usually he ends the arguments, we'll get it to you in due course or something along those lines. This was a very, God, I don't know how we're going to do this. Yeah. Now it's, as you mentioned, there's a lot of time spent by the advocate for State Farm talking about the conjunctive and this first allegation, as you said, about not having a flag man at the intersection. There was some discussion with Lavin and Cobbs and questions to that about, you know, that the flag man could in fact have duties other than for the dump truck that could tell somebody not to go into the intersection. It could, you know, do cross. Could have told the minor not to go into the intersection, the young fellow on the bike. Right. But it is going to be interesting because Justice Lavin was really, as you played, very focused on the jury instructions and that you only have to find one element of negligence. You know, this I think is a good reminder, Pat, of what we talk about, the essential requirement that you plead, do a good job of pleading the facts, whatever plaintiff you are, or counterclaims. You know, we've talked about in the COVID context, as you mentioned in the prior, that 
there, there are a lot of uh, a lot of those cases, um, and it hasn't been very successful. But again, people haven't been pleading specific facts of, of how there's physical loss to their premises, and so uh, uh, that's a factor. But um, the uh, there, there was some dispute in the, uh, the Nationwide's council uh, suggested that State Farm had failed to accept or do anything with the tender uh, from the concrete uh, from one of the additional insureds. And I thought the State Farm Council did a very good job uh, hitting that directly when she opened in, in her argument to... Yeah, that's where she focused. I mean, it was yeah. the, it's really a secondary issue because if there's not coverage, it doesn't matter. But right. she's pretty confident in that issue. So she's like, all right, I'm going to come back at the... Uh, we're not the bad guys here. So I'm going to come back at that. And she, that's, she right. really hit that hard. Right. So, and there's no dispute. I mean, there, there's no, there, there were three allegations in the complaint. The first was this flagman issue. The second was uh, that, that the truck was uh, going the wrong way in, in, in the lane uh, uh, on, on the road. Uh, was in the wrong lane and that it was an excessive weight for that street. If you go around Chicago and uh, areas, you'll see often, you know, trucks over X, not not permitted in, in the thing. And again, not sure that it really matters in this case. I mean, I'm not sure what the weight has to do with anything. The bicyclist I mean, was hit, yeah, we, so kind of exactly. A, <laughs> right. So, but, but anyway, um, and so like you said, there were, there were, uh, what, what happened here was State Farm, uh, tendered its $3 million. So it was a $1 million auto policy, $2 million umbrella. And they tendered that uh, as part of a global settlement. The, the goal was, you know, that was their entire exposure in this case. Um, At least from their perspective. Yeah, from, from their perspective. And again, the, the real issue here is under the CGL policy, whether or not uh, the uh, auto exclusion, uh, you know, totally avoided the duty to defend or indemnify in this case. And, um, you know, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see <laughs> how, what, 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 what side of the, the, uh, the, uh, equation, uh, Cobbs finds herself on because <laughs> I do think it's going to be, uh, uh, and a two to one decision. Um, and again, there were a lot of discussion during oral arguments about whether state farm was a stop. Um, there, there was there was talk, and again, one of the things that's probably a best practice for insurance companies that uh, I think we'd all agree is that you should put in writing any decisions on tender or acceptance of duties or other things. This was uh, it sounded like it was done orally, and and again, you when you when you have oral agreements or offerings you, you get to this situation you know a year or two later when things fall apart the the parties are uh disputing what you know whether there's someone's a stop what you know what the actual facts are so again some good lessons i think in this case but uh very interesting i thought the again that kind of shutting off and i as we talked about pat before we got in the air not directed at the advocate but it's it, it was effectively, and she kind of joked it off, you know, said, okay, you know, we've heard enough about this. But <laughs> I think it was, I think it was Justice Smith trying to just shut down uh, Justice Lavin's continued disjunctive arguments and asking again and again, you know, and, and, and re 
Galen is very successful uh, trial practice move as a plaintiff's lawyer. A couple things, and I want to correct something I said a moment ago. I just realized I misstated something. And that is that the estoppel really does matter because if because it would prevent, if they are a stop, they're a stop from raising this exclusion. Right. So that's why she went there. So I misstated something. I, I, I apologize. But the, the usual way you determine whether in Illinois, whether something is covered is you take the allegations of the complaint, you compare it to the policy, and you figure out if it falls or potentially falls within coverage. And the argument here is, is that this allegation that the, uh, the didn't provide the flagman and the fact that it was written in the conjunctive, that it's one, two, and three, not one, two, or three, which was Justice Lavin's point, one, two, and three, fell directly within the exclusion, and therefore there was no coverage. And so people understand a CGL, that's a commercial general liability policy. When they first started issuing these things, they used to be called comprehensive general liability policies. They're not, because they have a lot of exclusions. And one of them is the automobile exclusion, because what you get is, you get a separate policy called the commercial auto policy that covers your commercial autos. That's over there. And then you have uh, a CGL policy that covers all, all, all of your other risks that aren't related to automobiles. Uh, that's typically how this works. And then any writers of other kinds of special risks you have go on that CGL policy, which, as I said, is now called a commercial general liability policy, not a comprehensive general. Right. comprehensive general liability policy and on the property so, side they've gone away from all risk so same thing. exactly same kind of it's, idea it's they, such a broad concept people think comprehensive right. then and, and the very like, name gets you into what must cover the automobiles but it's got usually because the, usually these cgl policies will say we cover everything unless it's excluded that's how right. that's where that comprehensive comes from and there's a lot of stuff excluded yeah. <laughs> and there's some things that don't fall into the insuring agreement which is to your point about property policies, that's how all these COVID cases occur. They they cover everything except the stuff that isn't, but they first has to fall into the insuring agreement in the first instance, which is where the da you know damage to or uh, direct physical damage to or, or loss of property. So there we are, uh, a very brief bit of insurance 101. So with that, we will take our next break and come back with segment three and discuss falling trees or a falling tree. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three. And this, we're going to address the tree case, as Pat said. What duty does a landowner owe to his neighbors to prevent a large old tree from falling on them, resulting in their deaths? How do the following facts impact the analysis? The defendant landowners moved into the property a month and a half before the accident. The pre-purchase inspection report advised that the tree was acceptable, but because of its size and age, should be monitored for wood rot. Post-accident, the plaintiff's arborist opined that there were outward signs of wood rot. The tree fell during an E3 tornado that occurred during the winter, and LaSalle County had not experienced such a tornado during that time of the year since 1951. The tornado knocked down other trees, 
moved buildings off their foundations, moved cars, and destroyed roofs. The deceased were outside at the time the tree fell. The deceased had lived next to the property with the tree since 1977. Those are some of the facts that the Illinois Appellate Court 3rd District will consider when it decides Newkirk versus Leslie and whether the trial court was proper to grant judgment to the, the defendants. The trial court found no duty was owed and did not decide the issue in favor of the defendants. As an act of God, the, the argument was made. The elements analyzed under Illinois law to determine if there's a duty of a premises owner are, number one, the reasonable foreseeability of the injury, number two, the injury's likelihood, number three, the burden of guarding against the injury, and fourth, the consequences of placing the burden on the defendant. Pat, with that background, please tell us what oral argument. Thanks, Dan. And I'm going to cite the great legal theorist, Ron White, <laughs> uh, who is uh, a comedian who was on the Blue Collar Comedy Tour, if you are familiar with him, and one of his jokes related to wind. And he said, it is not that the wind is blowing. It is what the wind is blowing. <laughs> and in this case, the what was a giant 150-year-old hackenberry tree that fell on these two poor fellas um, while they were outside in the middle of a tornado. Now, <laughs> I, I posted on this and got a lot of questions about how the hell is are they are is the defendant liable when guys are outside during the during a, a windstorm and a tornado with 150 mile an hour or so winds? So that's not really the question. That's a comparative. That's assuming there was a duty. The question here is whether there was a duty in the first instance to protect these folks. Um, and so, so it really isn't a question of comparative fault. And Dan mentioned the elements of a duty for a premises owner. And so the first one is the reasonable foreseeability of the injury. Was it reasonably foreseeable that this tree would fall? And there was a lot of discussion about this, uh, about this report that was issued in December before they bought the property in January. And this accident or this incident occurred in March. So there's a short period of time, and you know, apparently, according to the plants arborist, there was, you could have seen that there was wood rot and, and so forth, but that doesn't mean you just go around chopping down trees, does it? Um, is it foreseeable that, you know, in the middle of winter, are, are you going to go around chopping down a tree? And is it foreseeable that this tornado would come when, as, as was pointed out, that such a storm hadn't occurred in LaSalle County in 70 years? Um, you know, the likelihood of an injury. Well, what's the likelihood of someone's going to be outside uh, in the middle of a, tor of, a, of a tornado, any tornado? Uh, never mind one of this strength. It's, you know, it's not the strongest of tornadoes, but it's a, that's a substantial storm. Um, and then the burden of guarding against the injury, well, they'd have to chop down this giant tree, and that ain't cheap. Um, and then the consequences of placing that, that burden on the defendant, well, th maybe that is where the comparative fault comes in. You know, don't be outside, be in the basement, be in the cellar. It's it, This happened in Peoria, I think, or, yeah. or someplace in the middle of the states. Like, you know, you've got a cellar. What in the, why aren't you in it uh, during a, during a, during a, uh, um, a tornado? That's where you belong uh, during a tornado is not outside, not upstairs in the cellar. That's, that's, at least that's how I learned it. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I feel, I mean, it's a terrible situation. These, these, these fellas, 
died as a result of this tree falling on them. But what what duty did these folks have, especially considering one of the two defendants was still living elsewhere with their minor child, presumably because they hadn't didn't want to move in the middle of the year, school and so forth. So they were going to move at the end of the move at the end of the year with the child. That's uh, my supposition. But the the mother wasn't with wasn't living in the house at the time. Only the father was. Um, so you know how and what burden are we going to put on your ordinary average homeowner to diagnose wood rot and the danger of a tree falling down? I, 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 I don't know. I have real questions about that. Not everybody's an arborist, especially when they got this report that said, hey, it's acceptable. You don't, you know, you don't need to, are they entitled to rely on that? Uh, it seems like they should be able to, but uh, we'll see. And then, the, and then you have the other argument they raised that didn't carry the day with the appellate court or the trial court because he didn't reach it. Is that this is just an act of God. This just isn't something, you know, act of God defense is that something happened that is, you couldn't have prevented, um, you know, just something, you know, lightning strikes or something. Uh, and you're not responsible when such a thing happens and don't have a duty to present, prevent such a thing from happening. But we'll, uh, we'll see what the court has to say about this. A very, as I say, a very tragic situation, but one that can teach some lessons about duty and, and so forth. Uh, another case where the plaintiffs are trying to expand uh, what duties are owed, just as they were in the first case we talked about in the third, third district. So, uh, Dan, any, any thoughts uh, on this particular case? I, th I think you know, Pat, I, I can't remember when it happened, but within the last year, our, our neighbor's tree had tree rot and uh, had some signs of it, and it had some people out on one of the huge limbs uh, cracked off after a, a major wind and rainstorm and uh, hit the top of our house. You know, we were inside and uh, I was in the basement and it, you know, felt like something hit, but didn't know what, but my wife was upstairs and it was, uh, you know, did some, some damage to our roof and things. Um, and, and the, the next door neighbors, you know, took care of it, but they're, they're you know, they then have, have had people out to figure out what they're going to do with their tree. And, you know, I think some people suggested, like you said, very expensive to take down the, the, the giant oak tree in this case, but they did not. So, um, so, so in that case, you know, if, if something fell from it again, you know, they're, they're probably unnoticed, but, uh, you know, and I don't know if they, they were obligated to, to pay us for the damage to our, our, our property or not, but they did. I mean, they, they took care of it. So in any event, uh, like you said, interesting cases and, a uh, lot, lot of lot of facts here that are unclear. Like I said, wasn't sure why they were outside. Although who knows? Uh, I don't know how fast this came. I don't know if they were out shoveling or they're coming home from somewhere. Who the hell knows? But the, and then right. I mean, you also think that there would have been a uh, tornado siren. Right. I mean, it, it, this is this is in LaSalle County. Um, you know. Yeah. Not not unusual to have not a, not unusual to have a tornado at that time of year, but that's that's part of Tornado Alley. I mean, tornadoes happen there, right. um, and and you would expect that there would have been a tornado warning going off. Heck, we have a tornado warning every every Tuesday at ten o'clock that goes off in downtown Chicago. In the rare event that a tornado comes downtown, it sounds every Tuesday at ten. Right. They test it, so there it is. So with that, let's uh, discuss uh, 
uh, business interruption for COVID developments this weekend. Uh, you want to tell us about these uh, various cases? Sure. A lot of it's the same same news as, as we've been talking about. Uh, one interesting development last week was the Virginia uh, Supreme Court recently refused to hear a hotel's virus suit in, in their appeal. They just uh, denied the uh, petition for leave to appeal. Uh, there was a Fourth Circuit. Did they deny it without opinion, or did they just say deny? Did you know, you I don't a know. Reason? I, okay. I wasn't able to open the the article, but uh, yeah. I don't know. Uh, All right. My guess, my guess, either way, I mean, probably you know the answer is pretty apparent, right? So, um, in another case, the Fourth Circuit affirmed the dismissal of a developer's five hundred million dollar appeal, and so probably one of the largest. Um, uh, affirmances of a of a motion to dismiss that was granted. So uh, that's that was of interest. And then last week, the Wisconsin Supreme Court heard Collectivo Coffee Roasters Inc. versus Society Insurance. There's society <laughs> again. Society, yeah. <laughs> wrote a lot of these policies. Interesting arguments. Uh, the policyholders talked about the fact that this policy uh, is not ISO, that it's uh, society driven. That one of the reasons it sells like it does in the Midwest, especially in Wisconsin is because it's homegrown. It has a contamination endorsement on it uh, that it... Uh, we talked about that in the Alley 64 case. Right. That it uh, that it doesn't have a viral exclusion even after SARS and even after they suffered from uh, SARS damages. Um, and, and some of the justices kind of were, were probing, although it was... I don't know if you were able to get, get it downloaded, Pat. I know you had some issues, but listening to it, it, it was uh, at one point one of the advocates... Re- to the, the female uh, justice asking questions is the magistrate and there's only one other voice I, I think I don't really hear too many questions from any of the uh, of the other uh, members of the Supreme Court of Wisconsin so I don't, I don't know what I, I wasn't quite sure what the deal was honestly um, it's Wisconsin it's they Wisconsin. do things strangely there I don't know <laughs> I don't yeah. know how it works which I had and, some insight but I don't so so that's it, on, that's it on COVID-19. You want to tell us about the one case this week and predictions sure to go wrong that we got right on two, two fronts? Yeah, we're, we're, going to take a, we're going to take a double on this one. This is the Parkview versus American Family case. Uh, they turned this one down around very quickly. This yeah. is the case where you had the Parkview one. They said, AmFam, you got to pay the lien. It goes back down. They say, uh, Parkview says, you got to pay our fees. The appellate court said, or the trial court says, um, you got to pay the fees, or you don't have to pay the fees, but you do have to pay the total amount of the lien. We said that they were going to be affirmed. They weren't going to find the fees were owed, agreed, and they were going to reverse and say all you owed is the policy limit of $50,000, not the $95,000 or so lien. And the appellate court, so we, we got that one right. So we took a, we took two. So Dan is 127 and a half, 19 and a half, and seven. And I am 126 and a half, 20 and a half, and seven. We do, we were very creative with these, usually in direction of favoring us doing well. Yeah. Uh, because it's our algorithm. We get to do what we want to do. That's it's right. Fun. The other case we punted on, also a quick turnaround from the Indiana Appellate Court, was county versus precast. I posted about that this morning. Um, on LinkedIn, this is a case we, we had no idea what was going to happen. And so we wisely said, we don't know what's going to happen. And 
uh, the court did in fact punt uh, because it said one wins, one loses, but you both lose because uh, you still owe the dub. Um, it was a case involving frivolous claims and said, well, one of you had a frivolous claim, the other one didn't, but you still owe the total amount of the bill for the fees that we assessed because uh, you didn't argue that the, it should be divided up. So you're stuck. Okay. Lovely. Uh, the, uh, which brings us to our prediction sure to go wrong for this week. Uh, Dan, what do you think is going to happen in uh, the Christian Muthi versus uh, Chen case? I, I think affirmed. Affirmed. I, I think. And then nationwide versus State Farm. Uh, I think Nationwide's going to win. I think Lavin's going to win the day with Cobbs. You, you think it's you think it's going to be a reversal? Yeah. <sighs> All right, I'll say I'll say affirmed. I'll okay. say affirmed. You can, um, you can either tire the gap will widen again. Yeah, I, I exactly. Well, you go. We exactly. Why not? Uh, we still have at least I think one more split hanging out there that hasn't been decided so. on yet. So. Yeah. You know, that, that, the, I, I, I don't know. I don't understand for the life of me what in the world the IPIs have to do with this. At no point have I ever read a case where the IPIs are at issue. Yeah. It, it just doesn't matter. It matters what's alleged. And they alleged and. I, I, yeah, I get Justice Lavin's point. It just doesn't matter. Um, we'll see. Uh, which brings us to, oh, sorry, one more. And then the tree case, that, that's getting affirmed. Affirmed. Yeah. Uh, as tragic as it is, it's getting affirmed. Because the alternative would be a crazy set of circumstances. Which brings us to the rule of the week, Dan. Why don't you uh, why don't you tell us about the rule of the week? Sure. And the rule of the week comes to us via the Divided Argument podcast with Will Bode and Dan Epps. An excellent podcast you should listen to. It They're is. wonderful. They are. To, to excellent uh, professors and, and people that know the court. Uh, and this deals with the Supreme Court of the United States rule that a pro se litigant is not allowed to represent themselves before the court. Uh, came up in the Wooden petition uh, recently. Wooden submitted his petition and it was granted. Then he had to retain counsel. Uh, this rule at the Supreme Court conflicts with the federal statute that permits it. The federal statute is 28 U.S.C. 1654 that provides in all courts of the United States the parties may plead and conduct their own cases personally or by counsel as by the rules of such courts respectively are permitted to manage and conduct causes therein. But Supreme Court Rule 28.8, which was adopted not that long ago, uh, requires attorneys of the bar only, and that will be linked in the show's posting. Um, and I, I, to some extent, get it, but it's, it does uh, conflict with that uh, code that I just read, which is all federal courts. And so, again, we have the Supreme Court with their Supreme Court rules <laughs> uh, that seem to conflict. And there's, I guess, nobody that can tell them that it is inappropriate. Well, a couple things. First, the Wooden case, if you all recall, is the case where the fella was accused, we talked about on the show where the fella got accused of, well, he had been convicted of stealing from 10 um, storage units. And the question was whether that made him a, a career criminal. 
because it was that one occasion or was that 10? And the appellate court, the circuit court had held that it was 10 and the, and the Supreme Court said, no, <laughs> that's one. Uh, and Wooden wrote this, uh, peti this petition for uh, a writ of certiorari on his own. And it was granted um, on his own. So bully for him. I, I, I take your point, it says in all courts, but I, I would focus on the end of the sentence, yeah. or the, which says, as by the rules of the such courts, respectively, are permitted to manage and conduct kept causes therein. And so the question becomes, what does that comma do? Does that comma mean that it only modifies counsel? Or does it modify both per, uh, their own cases personally, pro se, or by counsel? The comma would seem to indicate that the rule against the last antecedent doesn't apply and that it modifies both. But then we have to ask, what does the word respectively do? Right. Respectively what? Right. I, I don't know what that's referring to. So I can see a textual argument being made that it does allow them to do this, but even still, it's a bad rule. <laughs> Pro se should be able to represent themselves as ineptly as they might be. Uh, and I understand the court not wanting that because they want to get to the issues. Uh, I, they certainly have a good policy reason for not wanting to do that, but yeah. I, I, I don't know. We'll, 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 I, one day this might get litigated. And it, it, uh, apparently Will Bode on the show says, he has a standing invitation to uh, to assist any pro se that wants to litigate the, their own case, and he will represent them uh, in getting them to be able to do that. Because apparently he wants to see, uh, uh, I, I can only think of Fane Lozman going up there, uh, two-time winner at the Supreme Court, going uh, going back in front of the Supreme Court a third time on another case, and representing himself because that would just be entertaining, uh, right. if nothing else. So, um, again, uh, uh, Will Bode and Dan Epps are wonderful. They're both former Supreme Court clerks uh, and uh, excellent uh, scholars, and they you should listen to their to their show. It's a wonderful show. So, with that, Dan, anything else to add uh, nope. for this week's show? Nope. So we will see everybody next week. Happy Easter. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.